Well, good morning, Redemption Church. It is so good to be with all of you. And just as a quick reminder, we are in Luke chapter 12. And so you can either tap to or turn to Luke chapter 12 right now. Uh, and as I was driving into town this morning thinking about this, I, this is a legitimate like real-time poll. I am curious, so you can put it in the comments, whether it be on YouTube or on Facebook. But I'm just curious, like how many people nowadays lean more into the old school paper Bible for their daily reading stuff? and how many do it digitally? I was just kind of kicking it around because I'm old school. I'm just like that paper leather guy. Like that's the way I roll. But there's so many cool features in the electronic versions nowadays that more and more I kind of see people using that, leaning on that. And so I'm just kind of curious. It's just my own personal like, huh, I wonder how people do it nowadays. And so uh, just put there in the comments someplace like, hey, I mostly do old school paper or I'm new school digital. Either way is cool. It's amazing what we've been able to do in some of these apps nowadays where they can just motivate you more. They can give you quick cross-references, just great tools all the way around. And as long as we're in God's word, that's what matters to me, whether it be tapping or turning, it's all great. So anyway, just curious about that. Other than that, I'm going to go ahead and pray this morning. This is a really great text for us. I think it's one that is a deeply inspiring text. It's one that can give us great encouragement and courage, but it also means we have to have the courage to lean into what it says to get the encouragement. So I think that's going to take a lot of the Holy Spirit working in us. So I want to pray this morning, get us ready for that, and we'll dive right in. We'll see what Jesus has for us today. So let's go ahead and pray together. Jesus, I thank you that you give us promises that are sometimes... Um, they're like hard to, to grab onto. And I don't mean like, like you want them to be hard, but you're trying to get us to uncouple from our faith and trust in the world. And so you put before us like these carrots that are incredibly encouraging, but we have to take these steps of faith and we have to learn to sort of do what Israel had to do coming out of Egypt, which was let go of the gods that they trusted, let go of the idols that are so easily at our hand reach and instead kind of reaching out with with faith to something just just feels bigger than us, maybe sometimes scary and uh, uncertain for us. But I pray that we will do that because we want to be kingdom people. We want to be people that are ambassadors of something so radical, so different, so world-changing that we are willing to take those hard steps, let go of those idols that we grip onto, and instead we would take your hand, go your direction, follow your ways, and be a people not only different, but a people so different that the world looks and they go, man, I see your good works. And that must mean something about your Father in heaven and that they would glorify you, Father, because of what they see in us. And so we long to be more of what you want us to be. So help us to do that. Help us to be that. So we look to you now to teach us and guide us in your good name, Jesus. Amen. All right. So we are in week two of the topic of money, 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 money. Yeah, I don't sing. That's Trent's job. So, uh, but that is the topic. And we were starting into that last week and we knew that we were going to have two weeks on the subject. And so the way this started off in Luke chapter 12 is that Jesus is there and the crowd is just swollen to epic proportions. He's warned about the kind of hypocrisy of religious leadership. And then out of the crowd, a man calls and says, Jesus, uh, my brother and I were squabbling over the family farm. He's the big brother. I'm the little brother. He's not giving me what my due is. And so Jesus, do me a favor and go get my money, right? So he wants Jesus to go take care of his older brother and get the cash that he thinks he deserves. And it's in that context then that Jesus then teaches about money and he gives some warnings about money and he tells a story about a man that has this rich, fertile farm, thinks he's done all of this stuff to accomplish his wealth. And Jesus says, this man has actually shown 
himself to be a fool. And so from that, Jesus gave them a final moral of the story in Luke chapter 12, verse 21. He says, here is a person that is in fact foolish in life. A person is a fool to store up earthly wealth, but not to have a rich relationship with God. Now, I want to be clear here for just a second, because I think it's very easy sometimes, even for myself, to want to over-rotate and kind of, you know, take whatever Jesus says and take it to the furthest extreme. And I don't want to do that. And so I want to be clear that Jesus isn't saying you're a fool if you're successful. He's not saying you're a fool if you want to excel at what you do. He's not saying you're a fool simply because you're wealthy. That doesn't qualify one to be in the category of foolish here. But see, a fool is somebody who gets wrapped up in those pursuits. Or even in the story that he told, a fool is somebody who thinks that their success and their wealth is due to their hand. And because of that, they begin to just invest more and more in this thing that they think that they have accomplished. And from that, they get weaker and weaker and further from their relationship to God. And so Jesus is trying to make the point that it's okay to succeed. It's okay to have things, but make sure that you don't fall victim to the folly of making that more important. What matters most in our lives above all else, what's going to ground us, heal us, help us, and give us strength to reach the world is to have a rich relationship with God. Focus on the provider more than focusing on you getting more provision. That's the heart that Jesus is revealing in the story. But it's that story then that gives Jesus an opportunity to unpack more the idea about how we should relate to wealth. And so no sooner does Jesus deal with this person in the crowd, tell the story that it seems he turns directly to his disciples, his inner circle, and he begins to teach them. But when he does this, it's like for us 2,000 years later, we're allowed to enter the inner circle. We get to read the story. And don't just look at this as though, oh, Jesus has got the 12, they're huddled around, they're listening intently, and they're the only ones that get to learn from this. And do this. No, we're inside the circle too because we're his followers. So this is for us just as much as it was for them. So starting into verse 22, it says, then turning to his disciples, Jesus said, this, this is why I tell you not to worry about everyday life, whether you will have enough food to eat or enough clothes to wear. Now I'll be perfectly candid with you right now. When I read that, this sort of, to me, when, when I think about it, seems like an impractical platitude, right? Like I go, hey, that sounds so deep, so rich, so brilliant, but how much utility does it have in the real world to not even worry about something as critical as fuel for your body and clothing to keep you warm or protected from the sun? Like, how realistic is this? I kind of look at it and go, this is super easy for some 30-something single hippie to say that doesn't own a home, doesn't have a family, a wife or kids. Like, sure, Jesus, you don't even have a place to lay your head and you were fine. But what about those of us with a mortgage? What about those of us with bills, utilities, things to take care of? Like, how is this realistic for us? Should we even take it seriously or should we just blow it off and say, oh, it's another one of those bumper sticker statements. It's, that's nice. That sounds so cozy and cute and adorable and spiritual, but are we really going to do it? Well, here's the thing I want to, again, give some balance to as we take seriously Jesus's words, right? See, Jesus isn't trying to say, you know what, based on this, there's now a prohibition where you're not allowed to plan, 
You're not allowed to prepare. You're not allowed to save. You're not allowed to have insurance. You're not allowed to create retirements. He's, he's not trying to take us to those extreme places, but he is trying to give us a mindset on how we face our kind of material provisions. And in that, he wants us to think very seriously about the idea that we are to put more of our faith and trust in God than we are in these things, that we're not to get wrapped up emotionally, internally in the tangibles of life, whether it be wealth or even as he says here, necessity. Like he doesn't want us to get sucked into this idea where pretty soon we're constantly anxious about our provision or we have this sense of fear or we're fretting. In other words, Jesus doesn't want us to give space to our angst. I want to say that again. Jesus doesn't want to give us kind of this place of space in our hearts and minds for angst. He doesn't want us to get sucked into these things where we're more concerned about our material provision and that begins to then exercise authority inside our internal person and in our soul where pretty soon the outside world is dictating our internal spiritual and emotional health. He's trying to insulate us from those very problems. In fact, even this word that he uses here for life is a word that we came across last week. If we remember, we learned about three words. We learned about bios, we learned about psyche, and we learned about zoe. Here he uses psyche. And so what he's saying is don't get all caught up in your head about trying to get ahead and trying to get ahead to make sure that you can insulate yourself from the potential problems of life. We don't want to get so preoccupied with trying to be prepared that then we rob ourselves of a spiritual, emotional, and practical health in life. And so that's, that's what he's getting at here for us. And I'm going to be perfectly honest with you. I read that and I go, man, this is applicable to my life. And not simply in finances. I mean, I think we could go to finances pretty easily because that's the context. But, but Jesus does go bigger than just finances. In fact, he's going to eventually say, those are the little things. Food and clothing are the little things we worry about. And he says, man, if you're going to worry about those little things, you're going to worry, worry about big things too. And I think about that in my life because that's sort of the way I tend to roll sometimes. It's not that I like to or I want to. It's just sort of the thing that I struggle with. In fact, to make it real simple, some people will say, danger is my middle name, right? Like they do that. I look and I go, actually, safety and bubble pack's my middle name because like, I'm that guy that's like, I want to plan and I want to plan for the plan and I want three exit strategies in case one of the plans falls apart. And so I'm constantly trying to think ahead and say, what are all the ways something can fall apart? I need a plan for every single way they can fall apart. And because of that, it robs me of joy and it robs me of just enjoying the moment because I'm constantly way out ahead. In fact, my gift is sort of vision, which is great. Great, but I have this bent toward trying to solve problems related to vision. And from that, I just highlight all the potential problems and I'm trying to insulate all of those things. And then from that, again, it just sort of saps the energy of life. You can ask my wife, right? She will totally tell you this is true about me. In fact, if she says, hey, we're going to go with our friends to Mexico on a trip next year. My first thing is to bring up a map of the region we're going to and track all the roads and figure out all the exit points and all the ways that we could get into trouble. And I have to start mapping it all out. And she's like, can't you just have fun? I'm like, no, I'm trying to plan for disaster. And that's the problem. A disaster may happen or may not happen. But for me, I'm constantly thinking it probably will happen. And so how do I prevent that? See, this is what Jesus is getting at. 
when we sort of look at life from the perspective of kind of trying to constantly uh, prevent problem, all that really does in the end is puts a lot of energy and a lot of effort into angst. And Jesus knows the weight and the weariness of angst. So he says, do yourself a favor. You cannot like protect yourself against every disaster. You should not live life thinking that tomorrow is probably going to be a problem. And so you better work really hard to mitigate that potential problem today. He says, don't get sucked into that. Now, again, is it wrong to plan, prepare, save, have insurance, all those things? No, it's not wrong to do that. Not necessarily. But what it does sort of raise for us is our heart. In other words, some things that are really important when we try to analyze some of this is, well, if I'm saving, if I'm investing, if I'm, you know, kind of creating these securities, if you will, what is my heart motivation in that? Am I motivated by fear or am I just trying to be wise? Because there is a difference between those, right? And so we want to ask questions like that. We want to ask ourselves questions of, well, what is the level of my faith or my hope or my trust when it comes to my provisional parachutes? Am I saying these are the things that are really going to rescue me? These are the things we must have or else? Or am I saying, again, I'm just trying to be wise with what I'm doing? See, ultimately what this starts to come down to is making sure that we trust God for our provisional prosperity and wealth and care more than we trust our own ability to provide that and to ensure that. And even then this, what I think is really, really critical is that we don't rob ourselves of the God-abundant life, which is Zoe that we learned about last week, because we're so fixated on our bios and our psyche that we want to make sure our emotions are okay. And we want to make sure our level of kind of, you know, how much I've amassed is okay. And it's at the cost of the God-rich, God-saturated, God-intense life. See, Jesus doesn't want us to go down that road. So he's trying to give us some encouragement. Because if we try to create security in this life, it can be at the cost of our serenity and our Christ-centeredness. And so Jesus is just sort of disrupting the way we tend to think about life and face things sometimes. And so he says something then just straight up clear in verse 23. He says, you got to understand that life, real life, deep, true life is more than food and your body, it's more than clothing. Now, I think this is interesting to me because he, again, isn't talking about the stuff in the third bay of your garage, right? Just stuff that's stacked up, you don't care that much about. It's just the junk that we amass in life or the toys or the tools or whatever. He brings up things that you must have to survive. So he's saying, don't you realize that life is more than fuel for your body and clothing for you? Because if you think that life is first and foremost about your survival, then you know what? You may survive. You may have food. You may have clothing, but your soul may be starving and naked in the process. So even Jesus, when he was being tempted by the devil, says, you know what? Here's the deal, man. Man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Like Jesus lived this. He understood this. And so he instructs us in this. Now, when I read this, and when I try to figure out how do I teach this on a Sunday morning, I can't help but look and say, well, how do we pull all of this off? 
Like, how do we ensure that we don't fall into angst and fear and anxiety and fretting and worrying about how we're going to get ahead or worrying about how we're going to hold our line or worrying about if we're going to have something for tomorrow or worrying about if the economy tanks and inflation goes up and the stock market crashes, all the things that we watch the news every day about and we wonder, is the housing market going to crash because it's ballooning now and it's going to have to fall apart? And we can get just pulled into these things, right? And Jesus is trying to do us a favor and say, don't get pulled in. You want to focus more on a flourishing faith than you want to focus on trying to mitigate the problems. And so it does beg that question. How do I, how do, I do that? How do I really own this? Because I think sometimes for us as American Christians, it's easier to intellectualize our faith than to experience it. I mean, I think it's super easy to do because, again, we live in an incredibly comfortable climate. If we're just completely frank for a minute, we are not suffering. The poorest of us as Americans are rich by global standards. And so from that, it's very easy to be like students of the book, have our Bible studies with my $100 Bible, that classic heirloom quality leather Bible, 100 plus bucks for it. Like, you know, it's so easy to just live in our opulence and, and not really ponder these things. And from that, just have an intellectual faith, right? Have one that enriches my soul, that feeds maybe my consumerism, but an experiential faith is something different where we really trust God and we're willing to take the risks to put ourselves in places where God must be big because we're not trying to be big in his place. That's a different thing. And I think it starts by understanding God's heart toward us, God's commitment toward us in this realm. Because what Jesus wants us to really own and believe is that God, in fact, is in control. And God, in fact, cares about you. And God cares about you so much, he is going to provide for you so you can let down your guard and you don't have to think that you must provide for yourself and your family but rather, I just need to focus on God's provision in my life and in that he will be faithful to what I truly need. In fact, Jesus says it this way in verse 24. He says, look at the ravens. He says, they don't plant or harvest or store food in barns for God feeds them. And you are far more valuable than any birds. Now, here's what's cool about this. In the Jewish culture, in the Old Testament, in the law, ravens were both unclean and worthless, much like they are in the NFL, all right? So, bad pastor, I know, all right? So, hey, if you're a Baltimore fan, it's biblical. I don't know what to tell you, all right? So, but see, here's the thing. Jesus is saying, if God does that to these birds that are low on the pecking order, there's another one, pecking order, okay. Uh, if he does that with birds and you and I bear his image, and you and I are redeemed by his son. You and I are so precious to God that he sends his son to spill his blood, to redeem our lives, to give us wholeness. If he does that much for us, don't you think he's probably going to handle your house payment, your rent, your life, your food, your clothes, your stuff? Don't you think he not only has the power to do it, but he has the impetus to do it? He has the heart to do it, the care to do it, the investment that has been made in us to do this? Now, here's the thing about this that I was thinking about this week. And I think this is a little bit of a sidebar for a second, but I think it's important because I think this begins to challenge some of these things as we own this promise. I want to emphasize that what this says and what we'll continue to say is that God knows all your needs. Needs. He will provide for your needs. He will meet your needs. He's aware of your needs. He is invested into your needs. It does not say he will do all of your American dreams. He will do all of your wants. 
And see, I think where this confronts us as American Christians is we have 600 pound life wants. We have great hungers for many things, right? We want our apps and we want our our shows and we want our trips and we want our outings to dinner and we want all kinds of cool toys and fun things and it's why we have big garages and we have storage units and we have all this stuff. And I'm not trying to mock those things or shame us for those things, but what I'm saying is sometimes I think we're unwilling to trust God all the way because we go, okay, he'll meet my needs, but I've got wants. And sometimes all of our accruing, amassing, and saving, all of our emphasis on time and energy and emotion to having more money, to get more things, is related to our wants, not our needs. And from that, it robs us of a joy in trusting God because we sort of trust ourselves to provide for ourselves our wants. But Jesus is trying to get us to this point of saying, let go of some of that drive and make sure your drive is more toward the things of God than simply toward your wants. And if you do then you know that God will provide for you. He will take care of all your needs. And so this is one of the elements that Jesus is trying to teach all of us as his disciples. But the other thing Jesus is trying to do, and I think this is super pertinent for us as Americans, is he's trying to free us from our fears. He's trying to free us from our worries because when we worry about the economy, when we worry about prosperity, when we worry about our income, our business, our jobs, whatever, and we all tend to do this at some point, When we worry, it just drags us down, right? Especially when we worry about our wealth. And Jesus says, you're not doing yourself a favor. In fact, if anything, you're doing yourself a great disservice because it's going to drag you under more than it's gonna lift you up. Verse 25, he says, can all of your worries add a single moment to your life? And if worry can't accomplish a little thing like that, a little thing like getting food and clothing, right? That's the little thing. He says, what is the use of worrying over big things? See, it's funny because we all know this to be true, right? Like we would know it on paper. We, we could pass the test. Oh yeah, we shouldn't worry about whether we're gonna have something tomorrow. But then we get pulled into fretting and fixating and we're trying to read the little financial tea leaves of life and figure out a way to plot a path toward security. And it's not just in finances, it's in a lot of things. We try to plot paths of security for our kids, for our health, for our culture and our country. We're, we're always trying to come up with the best plan to ensure a certain outcome. And then we worry and we worry and we worry more. And Jesus says, man, do yourself a favor. Don't worry. Not simply because it is unfaithful and not simply because it's unhelpful, but ultimately he says, because it's futile. It's absolutely futile. Worry produces no miracles, works no wonders, fills no accounts, changes no hearts, and fixes no problems. Worry doesn't do any of those things. In fact, worry, if you want to really understand it, it constantly takes withdrawals and never makes deposits. Never. Worry just pulls from you, takes from you, borrows from you, but it doesn't pay back. And in fact, if anything, when worry takes from us, what it does actually is it double dips. So it makes you worry about what might happen. And then occasionally when something bad does happen, it makes you worry again. Right? We see this in one of the characters of Fantastic Beasts and Where to Find Them. There's this character, Newt, and he talks about this. He says, my philosophy in life is that I have learned that worry makes you suffer twice. And I think that's so valuable. In fact, we went through Ecclesiastes earlier this year, and it was the same message. 
right? His message is, life is unfair. You can do everything right and life falls apart on you. So don't worry, don't get all invested, don't get all fixated on life under the sun. That just leads to discouragement and depression. Focus on the little things, find joy in the little things. Don't get sucked into the stuff of life that you really can't control and fix anyway. And that's what Jesus is really saying here. He says, think about it. When you worry or I worry, he uses a metaphor that different versions say in different ways. He says, does it add any height to your stature or does it add any time to your life? I want you to think about that for just a second. When we worry, neither occurs. In fact, the opposite occurs. When we worry, not only does it not add 21 inches to our height, that's literally what a cubit is, it actually makes us do this. It makes us hunker over, makes us slouch, it makes us want to lay down on the couch and fret and ponder and try to fix things that we can't control. So it actually reduces our stature, doesn't give us greater stature. And when it comes to time, it doesn't give us time, it takes time from us right? Emotional time, family time, just freedom time, quality time. See, I think Jesus uses the metaphor. So we stop and go, no, man, you're right. Worry does the opposite of what I most want it to do. And so from this, he's saying, when you feel the will to worry, I need to stop. And instead of worry, you need to remind yourself of the promises that God has made to you and I. They're promises. They're not like maybes, possibilities, could happen, might happen. It's promises. And so the promise is reiterated in a different way. He says, now look at the lilies and how they grow. He says, they don't work or make their own clothing, yet Solomon in all of his glory was not dressed as beautifully as they are. And if God cares so wonderfully for the flowers that are here today and thrown into the fire tomorrow, he will certainly care for you. So why do you have so little faith? See, this is so good because there's a promise and then a little bit of like this loving admonishment where he's like, if God cares about wildflowers and weeds, don't you think he is more invested in you? Why do you get tempted by faithlessness, when God is so utterly faithful. See, this is why we shouldn't eat up all of our time with the worry, the anxiety, the fretting, putting all the energy into ensuring our survival, our stability, our future thriving or whatever else. No, we need to invest into the things that help us trust God in the little as well as the big. And I know that's not an easy prospect, right? It's not. It takes real energy and real effort. And so we want to continue to learn from Jesus. And so Jesus continues to teach us. How do we get to this point, Jesus? How do we do this? What do we need to make as a priority? He says in verse 29, don't be concerned. Don't be concerned about what to eat or what to drink. Don't worry about such things. These things dominate the thoughts of unbelievers all over the world. But your father already knows your needs. So Jesus has talked about the weariness of worry, and now he talks about being consumed by concern. And for us, we go, well, those are just synonyms, right? Worry and concern, when I feel concerned, I feel worried, worried, concerned is the same thing. But in the original Greek language that Luke writes, concern means something different. It literally means to make oneself high. Now, at this point, you're like, so now Jesus goes from food and clothing to cannabis. No, this is not. It's not a prohibition. It's not what he's getting at. It's not the topic. The topic here about to make oneself high is to amass things, to hoard things, to insulate and protect yourself against potential calamity. So when you're concerned about making sure you have enough, 
You've hoarded enough. You've stored up enough. You've padded enough. Then it's okay. Then life's going to be okay. Then he's like, that's where you don't want to be. You don't want to be constantly concerned with that because then you're going to feel like I need a bigger barn. I need a bigger barn. I need a bigger, just a little bit more padding, just another month's worth, just another two months worth, just another thousand, whatever it is. Like he knows that it becomes the cycle that grips you. Now, again, I have to keep saying, Jesus is not anti-preparation, anti-investment, anti-savings, but he is anti-idols and he's anti-doubt and he's anti-misplaced faith in money or fear that we won't have it, misplaced hope that it's going to make me happy, right? Misplaced things like trust or want. Jesus says that's where you don't want to be concerned with such things. You don't want your concern to dominate you Right, because think about it. We'll know if we're concerned or whatever else. You just simply have to kind of measure how much time and energy and emotion you feel as it relates to trying to protect your financial future. Like if you feel like, man, I really do put a lot of time there, it's going to be problematic, and Jesus knows it. And perhaps what's most tragic is not just the fact that it causes us to worry or it kind of saps abundant spiritual life out of our lives, but Jesus says something here that actually really should cause us to pay attention and, and, and really analyze a little bit. And what he says is, fundamentally, when we do this, it ruins our witness. Notice he said there again, I'm just going to read it to you. He says, these types of thoughts dominate unbelievers all over the world. Right? So when we, as Christians, are running around worrying about the economy, worrying about future prosperity, wanting to make sure that we protect all of that. How does the world see that? Do they go, wow, you guys just, you don't care about the problems and dangers of the world because you trust your God so much. You know he's in control so much. Or do they look and they go, man, you guys tout a Bible, but you don't really believe the Bible you tout. Or you say the Bible is the truth of God, but you don't live the truth that's in the Bible. If we say God is sovereign, God's in control, God will meet my needs, God will handle me no matter what comes my way, but then we're running around talking about how we're worried about all these things. Honestly, as a disbelieving person, I would look at that and be like, I don't know why I'd want to sign up for that. It's no different than what I go through. I go through the same fretting problems and worries that you do. The only difference is I don't have any guilt to give 10% of it away. Right? So this is where all the more, the reason we want to lean into these words of Jesus and take them seriously and apply them is so that we don't worry, we're not consumed, and we're better witnesses to the kingdom and the gospel. So that we show the world that God is so real in our hearts and lives and in our bones, we practice faith and trust and a sense of, man, I am not going to get all sucked in to the worries and problems that are easily put on my doorstep because I can easily get pulled those ways. Now, I'm going to resist that pool and trust God. I'm going to believe that God is in control, that he cares about me passionately, and he's going to provide for all of my needs. Not all my wishes, not all my wants, not all my dreams, but he'll provide for all my needs. And when he does that, he's also going to provide for me spiritually and emotionally as he does so tangibly. In other words, he will reset my heart to be calm and at peace, even if I don't have. Because that's a promise we see executed throughout the New Testament. Like Paul got this. He's like, man, I've learned the secret of contentment. I've had nothing and I've had everything and it didn't change me internally at all. And he says, why? Because I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. I can face every condition in the strength of Christ. Christ is just trying to give us the roadmap of how to sense that strength, to have that stability, to live in this way.
So from this, what's he tell us to do? Verse 31, so good. He says, seek the kingdom of God above all else and he will give you everything you need. Underline that or tap that and highlight if you use an app, everything you need, not some things, most things, everything you actually need. So don't be afraid, he says, little flock, for it gives your father great happiness to give you the kingdom. Now, in a moment of candor here, this is very interesting to me. When I, when I was looking at this, I'm like, all right, God is so happy to give us the kingdom. Like this is the thing he'd been waiting for for thousands of years, that inbreaking of the kingdom. I'm sending my kid. He's gonna come into the world of the kingdom. I'm gonna give my kid the kingdom and he's gonna give them the kingdom. Like it's this really powerful thing. And so he's super happy. But I'll be honest, I don't think we're as happy to receive the kingdom as he is to give it. And here's what I mean by this. I think we're all super stoked about the future kingdom, right? Like the new heaven, new earth, rock on, let's get to that. But the road to that is the kingdom and how it begins in this world. And when we receive the kingdom in this world, it means we take the words of Jesus seriously. We live out the values of the kingdom in the world that we currently inhabit. To actually seek the kingdom and its righteousness is to do some tough stuff, right? Jesus does not invite us to easy things. I shared that through the season of Lent, I was going through the Sermon on the Mount and the Sermon on the Plain, right? And here's a challenge I'm gonna give to every single one of you watching. I would challenge you, even dare you, to go through Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John just over the next couple of months. Go through it with a highlighter or just have a tablet next to you with a pencil or a pen and write out everything that Jesus commands us to do that pertains to living out a kingdom value. Like everything he says, this is what it means to live the kingdom. This is what it means to follow me. This is what it means to be my disciple. I look at that list and I go, man, I don't know if I'm excited to seek first the kingdom, right? Just think about what it is. Like just on the Sermon on the Mount or the Sermon on the Plain, right? Love your enemies, do good to them, pray for them, right? Actually do good things to those who are spiteful and mean and abuse you, like do that. When somebody demands you do something where you're not really given a choice, they just tell you, you're gonna do this or else. Jesus says, you do twice as much. That's crazy. Like honestly, every time I read through the Sermon on the Mount and the Sermon on the Plain, I go, this is just all nuts by all American worldly standard, right? This whole idea of deny myself, take up my cross and follow him. It's so opposite of what I've encouraged to do in other quadrants of my society. But that's what Jesus calls us to do, to go the extra mile, to turn the other cheek. What do you mean turn the other cheek? My dad taught me to punch first, not turn the other cheek, right? So all of these things are seeking first the kingdom and its righteousness. Because as we've learned through the gospel of Luke, the kingdom's upside down, it's backwards. It's other than this world. But see, in this command to seek the kingdom first, there's a promise. It says the promise is that all of these things will be added unto you. In other words, when we say, all right, I'm gonna go all in on doing kingdom stuff. I'm gonna do it your way, Jesus. I don't always want to because my way is independence. Your way is dependence. My way is I'm first. Your way is I'm last. Like, Like again, it's super backwards. But when we do it, we have the guarantee that God will take care of us in every single way. The more I invest great care into the kingdom, the more the king invests his own personal great care into me and into you. And so it's very compelling, though very challenging. And in the end, I think it takes great courage. I think it takes more courage to live the kingdom than to stand up for myself and my culture. 
because it means I have to submit myself to denying myself, taking up my cross and following Jesus. That takes far more courage. It takes more courage to stop worrying and stop being concerned and seeking first what God cares about, even if it means I lose out on what I sometimes care about. That is deeply courageous. And I think it's good because what Jesus isn't interested in is just somebody that testifies, somebody digs his talks, because lots of crowds came around, right? Jesus doesn't want fans. Jesus wants followers. And so to kind of separate out the, the wheat from the tares, so to speak, in this talk, after talking about all this wealth and money and trusting God and not trusting stuff, he really then asks his followers to act, verse 33. says, if you're really on board with this, you really get me, you're really jiving with what I'm saying, then sell your possessions and give to those in need. This will store up treasure for you in heaven. And the purses of heaven never get old and develop holes. Your treasure will be safe and no thief can steal it and no moth can destroy it. Here's what I appreciate about Jesus after this big talk on bank and cash and bucks and everything else, right? I'm sure there's people sitting out there in the crowd. They're like, that's right, amen. Oh, so good, Jesus. I know some greedy people that need to hear this message. And Jesus like calls everybody out and says, okay, well, if you're tracking with what I'm saying, do yourself a favor, get on board. You think it's awesome? Awesome. Start selling your stuff. Start giving it away to the poor. Like he just calls out all platitudes again, right? He says, if you get it, you give it. If you don't get it, you're not going to give it. Like it's just kind of that simple for him. And it's genius. I think it's totally genius. But here's what's even cooler about this. Jesus isn't asking you or I to engage in charity. Jesus is actually appealing to a level of our self-interest, not in a selfish, sinful way, but in a very different way. Notice what he's saying here. He doesn't say, take your possessions, sell them, and give to charity. He says, take your possessions, give them to the poor, and you're investing. You're investing. And so it's super cool in this sense because he says, when you do that, you're actually, it's like the only way. We always say, you can't take your stuff with you. And Jesus says, that's not true. You can take all the wealth of this world with you. You just have to invest it into others. That's the exchange. Like the exchange rate from earthly currency to heavenly currency is you take earthly currency and you invest it in kingdom things. You give it to the poor. You give it to kingdom purposes. You give it to gospel ministries. You give it away. When you do that, Jesus says, it's so weird. You turn it from American currency into like kingdom currency. So it's the greatest form of investment. Every other investment in the world is at risk. Jesus says, it's the only investment that isn't. And then weirdly enough, when you do that, so not only are you investing, you get it back with a higher return on investment. Jesus says a hundred times the return on investment for doing this. So it's way bigger, right? But it takes faith and trust, right? Like if we don't really believe we're all gonna be hanging out in a new heaven, new earth, this isn't that compelling. But if we really believe there's a new heaven, a new earth, and this is the currency of it, then this is very compelling, right? So that's one thing that's cool about this. The second thing that's really cool about this is it frees us from worry and concern and angst. Like if we're saying, I'm not going to be held captive by this. He's like, then you're going to be really free to enjoy life a lot more. So not only do you have heavenly currency, you have a lightened heart. But then the third bonus is you help other people in the process. You get the joy of being relief to other individuals as you do this. So from this, Jesus brings it back to something that's very probing for all of us, every single one of us. Verse 34 He says, wherever your treasure is, there the desire of your heart will be also. See, I think that's both inspiring and confronting because that statement is both a promise and a warning and a reality all rolled into one, right? 
And so what he's saying is, you want to know if you really believe this. Not just you go like, oh, it's the Bible, it's truth. I love the truth of the Bible. I believe in the sufficiency and sanctity of scripture. Like all these things we can say. He says, you want to really know if you believe this? Just look at your credit card statement and your bank statement. Like he's like, there's, there's proof for you. Just see where you spend your energy and your emotion. When you have money is your first thought, how can I give some of this to kingdom things? And, or is your first thought, how can I spend this on me or my family or my stuff or my wants or my interests? Now, again, there's nothing wrong with having family stuff, wants and interests. It comes back to a heart again, right? Where do I want to put this? Why do I want to put it in this place? What do I most care about in life? That's what Jesus is trying to get us to. Ultimately, what do I most trust? Do I trust God's provision and God's promise to reinvest my money with greater return? Or do I trust my own provision, my own way, and my own ability to make wealth and create an infrastructure that creates more wealth for all of us? Do I trust that more? Because when Jesus says in Matthew chapter six, we can't serve two masters. He says there's God, and he uses this old school word mammon. And people are like, mammon, we go, well, we just translated as money. But actually, mammon comes from the word amon, and that word means that in which we most trust. So the question is, what do we most trust? God to provide and God to enrich us in the life to come or in my ability to provide and to be enriched in this world here and now? That's what Jesus confronts us with, but he also gives us hope. He says, if you seek first the kingdom, God's going to take care of your needs and he's going to add so much more to you as a witness in this world, as a blessing to others, and as one who can look forward to the life to come in all the ways God enriches and rewards us. It's with that I want to go ahead and pray for us right now. Jesus, I thank you. I thank you for promises. I thank you for truths. But I also confess my own insecurity to these things, my own humanness in these things, that I, as much as anybody, can get wrapped up in worldly worries, worries about security, worries about stability, worries about finances, worries about health, worries about national crises, worries about human problems. I mean, it's just so easy to be earthly. But Jesus, we want to seek first the kingdom. We don't want to be people who have such little faith as you pointed there. We want to be people of great faith, people who, who trust you in the little things, and therefore, of course, we're going to trust you in the big things too. And so help us to be different. Help us to be a people when the world looks, they go, man, you guys never complain. You never doubt. You never grumble. You're never worried. Why? And we go, well, because God's got it handled. We're just seeking first the kingdom and his righteousness. I pray that we're not waving Bibles that we don't really trust. Rather, if anything, I pray that we would show our trust so much that people would ask about our Bibles that we don't even have to wave them around. Our lives would be declarations of something so radical, so different. They'd be like, I got to read that book, right? I don't want to have to defend scripture. I want to live scripture because that's the greatest defense. It's compelling. It's not even defense. It's offense. It's just something altogether different. So Jesus, help us to do that and be that in your name, in your strength, trusting you greatly in your name. Amen. Amen.